The section of Scripture that we're studying this morning has a foundational principle. So everything that Paul says from verse 15 on through the end of the chapter is founded on a principle from verse 14, which says this, For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So this is the foundational principle. Christians are not under the law, but under grace. What does that mean? It means if you're a Christian, the consequences of sin have been canceled for you. The punishment you deserved for sin has been satisfied. The penalty has been paid already by Jesus who died in your place on the cross. And what that means is you can't be condemned. It's not possible. It means you won't be found guilty at the final judgment. You will be, and you already are, innocent because of the grace of God. You are not under the law. You are under grace if you're a Christian. But every time Paul highlights grace, he asks this question. It's the same question from verse 1. Verse 15, what then? You're not under the law, but you're under grace. Well, what then? Should we sin because we are not under the law? but under grace. I want you guys to think back to high school for a moment, or if you're not there yet, think about towards high school. (laughs) Do you remember hall passes in high school? I was thinking about this the other day. When I was in school, at least, there was the class period. I think we had nine periods when I was in school, and then there was the passing period. And the passing period was the time when you could be in the hallway You had to go from one class to another. You could stop at your locker, put something away, get something out, get a drink from the drinking fountain, catch up with your friends, mess around for a few minutes. And then the bell would ring and class period would begin. And during the class period, no students were allowed to be just roaming around the halls doing whatever they wanted. Unless you you procured this magical item known as a hall pass. A hall pass was a little piece of paper, and if your teacher, if you needed to go to the nurse's office, if your teacher needed you to run something from their class to another class or deliver a message to another teacher, they would give you a hall pass so that if you ran into faculty in the hall during the class period, you wouldn't get in trouble. And it was like a golden ticket of freedom, (laughs) at least for me. I was a serial hall pass abuser when I was in high school. So you get that hall pass, and all of a sudden it's like, I wonder what my friends are doing in the lunchroom right now. (laughs) I wonder what they're doing in the study hall. I wonder what's going on in the gym class. And so I would just, I I would run around the school and do whatever I felt like with my hall pass. Don't do that, by the way. If you kids are going into high school, it's not what it's for. But here's kind of what Paul is asking. Should Christians think of God's grace like a hall pass? Like God has signed off on you not being in trouble, so now you can sort of do whatever you want. Is that the idea? Even sin, is that the idea? Is that how we should think of God's grace? What does Paul say? Absolutely not. Okay, well, why? Why not? Here's some of the implications of being under grace. We already covered these. Paul covered these in the first half of Romans chapter 6. You can't be condemned. You can't be found guilty at the final judgment. You are made righteous in Christ. All of that is true. But now he's going to say, in addition, 
You can truly obey God if you're under grace. You can genuinely please God if you're under grace. You can live righteously moment by moment, not just be positionally righteous, innocent in the eyes of God. You can actually do righteous things. You can think righteous thoughts. And he says you will if you're a Christian. You didn't even have the option to live righteously before being saved by God. Now you can. This is why one theologian points out, I think correctly, he says grace lays upon us the responsibility of holiness. I love that. Grace is not a hall pass. Grace, the gift of God's grace in Christ, it actually puts the responsibility to live righteously on you. See, before you couldn't even do it if you tried. Now, because of grace, you have the Spirit of God. You have freedom in Christ. And you can and you should live a holy life. So far, Paul has argued in Romans that a Christian's identity shapes how they view sin. A Christian's design shapes how they view sin. And in this final section, he's going to argue that a Christian's destination shapes how they view sin. Not just the end point of the destination. Okay, so if you're a Christian, you're going to heaven. That's your final destination. But also, I think Paul has in mind the journey to get there. So if you were born, I'm sorry, if you are a Christian, then there is a moment in time where you were born again. That's the way Jesus puts it. You became a Christian. You were converted to faith in Christ, just like you were born as a human being, on your birthday, however many years ago, you came into the world. Your life began. Jesus says, just like that, if you're a Christian, there was a point where you became a Christian. You crossed over from spiritual death to spiritual life. Your sins were washed away in that moment by the blood of Jesus. The Spirit of God united Himself with your spirit. In Romans, Paul calls this justification. If you're a Christian, you've experienced justification, and that is by grace alone. That's a major part of what Paul is talking about. And, he says, if you're a Christian, then a day is coming in the future when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, and you will be resurrected to eternal glory in heaven. The Bible calls this glorification. And glorification is by grace grace alone. The same grace that justified you is the same grace that will glorify you. But what Paul is pointing out here in this section of Romans is that there is a path that goes from justification, boom, you were born again. You became a Christian. There's a path that goes from this point to glorification, the day that you will enter paradise. And that path is called sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification is the path that every Christian is on. It is the ongoing process of becoming more and more like Jesus. This is your destination in Christ. That every day, every moment, as time goes by, you are becoming more and more like your Savior, like Jesus. Your character is becoming more like His. And your affections, what you love, is becoming more like His. Your priorities, your purpose is becoming more conformed to His. 
So why should a Christian not use grace as a hall pass to sin? I think this is Paul's argument, because the same grace that justified you in the past, I have a little graphic here, same grace that justified you in the past is the same grace that will glorify you in the future, which is the same grace that is sanctifying you right now in the present. If you're a Christian, your destination determines how you view sin. So Paul is going to show us the pathway of sanctification by exploring four principles. Principle number one, he says, self-surrender leads to slavery. If you want to understand sanctification, you need to understand the principle that self-surrender leads to slavery. You have to go back to verse 13 to get the full thought here. But he says in verse 13, as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God. We talked about this last week. Offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Now he connects that thought in verse 16. He says, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, he's implying if you offer yourselves to someone, you are offering yourself as a slave. Now he admits in verse 19 that this is a crude analogy. He almost like apologized for it. But I'm using this analogy, he says, because of the weakness of your flesh. This is the best way for you to understand it. So he admits it's a crude analogy. I think for us, it probably feels even more crude because of our modern conception of slavery. So you need to understand that Paul did not view slavery the way we view slavery. We think about slavery in terms of in the American South in the 19th century. Typically, when you think about slavery, that's what you think about. But that's not how slavery worked in Paul's culture. In Paul's culture, the Mediterranean world in the first century, slavery was one of the main solutions to poverty. So the idea is that if you were so poor, if you were so poor that you could not afford shelter or food or clothing, so you couldn't make money to buy food or clothing or shelter. And a lot of people, they didn't necessarily make money, but maybe they owned some land. Maybe they owned some animals. Maybe they had a piece of ground that they could plant crops on, and then they could live off of those. They could trade those things to make clothing. You didn't have any of those resources at all. If you were so poor that you couldn't provide shelter, food, or clothing for yourself, you could offer to be somebody's slave. You work for them doing whatever they want, and in exchange, they would feed you and clothe you and shelter you. And so in most cases, the slave master in this culture was not the initiator of the relationship. They didn't go out and kidnap or purchase slaves. It was the slave who was the initiator. They would offer themselves to a master as a means of survival. We talked about this last week. Part of what Paul is saying is that if you want to be free from the mastery of sin, the solution is to offer yourself to God, to his mission, to his purpose. So you say, like Jesus said, he said in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see the kingdom of God. So Paul is saying, Christians, what we do is we say, I am spiritually poor. I have no righteousness. 
And I I can't earn righteousness. I can't buy righteousness. I can't work for righteousness. There's nothing that I can do to get it. And so we offer ourselves to God in desperation. God, I'll be yours. I will serve you. My life will be yours. And in exchange, God gives us as a free gift, righteousness. And so real freedom, he says, is in offering yourself to God. Your whole life becomes his for his mission and his purpose. But the implication for the Christian is that sin is no longer your master. God is now your master. That's the first principle. Self-surrender leads to slavery. Principle number two, slavery demands obedience. This is how slavery works. He says, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Now, it's a little bit confusing because he's saying you obey obedience. But he's using obedience as a category the same way later he's going to say slaves to righteousness. All of it, the idea is you are a slave to God who obeys God. That's the idea. Slavery demands obedience, definitionally. This is just part of the package. Principle number three, conversion to Christ is the transfer to a new master. Conversion to Christ, part of what comes in the package of Christianity is there is an exchange of slave masters. Verse 17, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you observed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over, and having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. So here's the progression. He says, you started, we all started in the same boat, slaves to sin. He says, you were set free from the slave master of sin, but you are now slaves to righteousness, which is another way of saying to God. Now, it's interesting that he doesn't say slaves to God, (laughs) although that's certainly included. The emphasis is on living righteously in service to God. So you've been transferred from one slave master to another. The question, though, is how did that happen? How did that happen? How did you go from a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness? He says, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. This is how the transfer took place. You obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. Now, what is the pattern of teaching that he's talking about? Well, of course, it includes the gospel message. We know from what Paul has already said in the book of Romans, particularly in chapter 3 and chapter 5, that the gospel message, believing the gospel message, is the essence of faith in Jesus. It's the basis for justification. So you can't be converted to Christianity. You can't be born again without believing that Jesus was the perfect, sinless Son of God who died in your place for your sin. So when it comes to justification, it's very clear. God does everything. You do nothing. God initiates. But it seems that Paul is connecting conversion. So there's justification, but conversion, the Christian life, is more than just justification. It includes sanctification, glorification. And it seems that Paul is connecting conversion not just to internal faith in Jesus, but also to an adherence, 
an obedience to a pattern of teaching. Now, we don't know exactly what that is. It certainly would have included the gospel, but it likely also includes ethical standards. You remember Jesus in the Great Commission, he says, go therefore, make disciples, baptizing them so they believe the gospel message. They're justified, they're baptized, but then what? Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So that's very likely what Paul's talking about in terms of this pattern of teaching. But Jesus, he cares what you believe. He cares who you give your life to, who you serve, but he also cares how you live. He cares how you treat people. He cares about your ethical, moral decisions and thought processes. And so there is a behavioral component to Christianity. This is why we said last week, you're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. God cares deeply about your obedience. Principle number four. Okay, so what have we we covered so far? Here's Paul's progression. Principle number one, self-surrender leads to slavery. Principle number two, slavery demands obedience. Principle number three, when you became a Christian, you were transferred from one slave master to another. Principle number four, both types of slavery bear fruit. This is what he's trying to get us to understand. Both types of slavery bear fruit. So here's the logic, I think, from Romans chapter six. What you believe will determine what master you offer yourself to. There's no such thing as a masterless Christian. Jesus says, you're going to serve someone. (laughs) But you can't serve two masters simultaneously. And what you believe will determine what master you offer yourself to. What master you offer yourself to will determine who you obey and your obedience either to sin or righteousness will determine the fruit of your life. This is where he's getting to. Explains this in verse 19. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so that is a long explanation. But Paul's main point is that your obedience, either to sin or righteousness, will determine the fruit of your life. There's a contrast, a comparison between fruits. And he sums it up in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We often think about this verse as like an evangelistic verse. And it is, it's helpful to explain to people the wages of sin is death. But look at Paul's broader point. He's comparing fruit. That's what he's doing. And he says, if you offer yourself to sin as your master, that's the idea. If you offer yourself to sin as your master, you will get the wages that you have earned. This is how wages work. You will get what you deserve if you offer yourself in obedience 
to sin. And what you have earned, what you deserve, is corruption, shame, and death. That's his point. And this is obviously true. This is why this is a helpful verse when it comes to evangelism, because you don't have to be a Christian to see that this is obviously true. I want you guys just do a little thought experiment here. Think about the last time you did something blatantly sinful or shameful that you knew was wrong. Now, I know something about that already. We don't have to sit down and have a conversation. I know something true about that thing that you did or thought or said without you even telling me. And you know something that's true about me as well. Whatever that thing was, you did not think to yourself the next day, man, so glad I got drunk last night. <laughs> you know, that was a great decision. I just feel really good about it. Like you've never thought that. You've never said to yourself, man, I'm so glad that I got super angry with my spouse and shouted at them in a fit of rage. <laughs> you, you've never thought that. You've never thought to yourself, man, I'm so glad I looked at pornography yesterday. Or I got impatient with my kids and yelled at them. Or, or I just held on to bitterness. Nobody thinks that. You know that sin is destructive. You know that it's bad. You know that it's corrupting. And you don't even have to be a Christian to know that. The wages of sin is death. Now, in contrast though, what does Paul say? He says, on the other hand, if you offer yourself to God as your master, you will get a gift that you don't deserve. You offer yourself to sin as your master, you will get the wages that your sin has earned. If you offer yourself to God as your master, you will get a gift that you don't deserve, which is adoption as his child. It's power through his spirit. It's a new life of joy and freedom where you become just like your Savior more and more and more. It just keeps getting better. You just become more and more like Jesus until finally you see him face to face in paradise. There's a paradox here. It makes the passage a little bit confusing because <laughs> it's like, Paul, what are you talking about? But here's the paradox. Paul essentially is saying is that freedom is slavery and slavery is freedom. What? <laughs> freedom is slavery and slavery is freedom. Freedom from righteousness. The hall pass to run around the world in your life and do whatever you feel like, he says that is slavery. That will lead to death. But when you enslave yourself to God and say, God, my whole life is yours, whoever you want me to be, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I will be your slave. He says that's where real freedom is found. That's where life is found. And part of what that means is that Christians need to have our heads on a swivel. We live in a world where reality and truth are upside down and backwards from everything your flesh and the culture are telling you. So if you're a Christian, the question becomes, okay, how do I stay on this path of sanctification? Because that's really what we're trying to do. I'm justified 
I've been born again. I've been converted to Christ by the grace of God, no effort of my own. One day I'm going to be glorified, resurrected to eternal glory with Jesus by the grace of God, by nothing that I've done. And in the meantime, I want to be who I am in Christ. I want to become more and more like my Savior. How do you do that? Two points of application. Number one, consider yourselves dead to sin. Consider yourselves dead to sin. If you were to go back and read the first five chapters of the book of Romans straight through, do you know how many commands you would find in five chapters? Does anyone know? Zero. No commands for five chapters. Paul's just laying out doctrine. He gives the doctrine of sin, the consequences of sin. He gives the doctrine of justification by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus, but he never tells us to do anything. Just doctrine. And so finally, after five whole chapters, the very first command in the book of Romans, it comes in chapter 6, verse 11, where he says, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I think this is the key to understanding everything he's saying in Romans chapter 6. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's remarkable that the first command given by Paul in the book of Romans after five chapters with no imperatives, just doctrine, it's not actually a command to do anything. It is a command about how you think. It's a command to think about yourself a certain way. It's the command to consider. Consider. The Greek word is lagizomai, and it means to think, consider, reason, compute, or calculate. That's what the word means, lagizomai, which is an intentional reasoning. That's what it is. It is a mental computation done on purpose that it arrives at some conclusion. And so the command here, it is a command to think about the fact that in Christ you are no longer a slave to sin, but instead you're a slave to God. That's what he's saying. Just think about that. Think about that fact. Let it roll through your brain. Think about all that it means. It means you have a new master. It means you have a new identity. It means you have a new purpose. It means you have a new character. And all of that new life is incompatible with sin. If you're a Christian, all of that is true, whether you're thinking about it or not. <laughs> so then I, I just ask myself the question, all right, all this is true. If I'm, if I'm a Christian, all of it's true, whether I'm aware of it, whether I'm conscious of it, whether I'm thinking about it in the moment or not. So why does Paul command us to think about it? This is what I've been wondering as I've been studying this chapter for the last few weeks. Why, Paul, do you command us to think about something that can't change? Just to consider it all the time. I heard somebody say this several weeks ago, and I have not been able to get it out of my brain, and I think this is a big part of why Paul gives us this command. Here's a principle. I think that this principle is true in all of life. It's sort of a universal universal principle just about how our brains work. Here it is. Thoughts are not thinking. Maybe you've heard that before. I'd never heard it before, but it's true. Thoughts are not 
thinking. So let me explain this. Almost constantly, basically constantly, all the time, you have thoughts going through your head. Right now, you have thoughts going through your head. What's for lunch? <laughs> Is this guy almost done talking? <laughs> What's the weather going to be like this afternoon? Man, it's been warm recently. I wonder if my tulips are going to survive or if they're going to be obliterated by a foot of snow before we get out of March. I wonder if I should put the snowblower away for the year. All the time. They're just constant thoughts. We recently went as a family to the new Willy Wonka movie. You guys seen the, raise your hand if you've seen the new Willy Wonka movie. Really good movie. Recommend it. But I was laying in bed several days later after going to the Wonka movie, and I never, I mean, I normally, head hits the pillow, I'm gone, like 30 seconds. But I'm laying there, and I realized I couldn't fall asleep, and then I was like, why can I not fall asleep? Well, it's because there was this thought that was going through my brain. Do you know what it was? Oompa Loompa. <laughs> no! I was like, no! I couldn't stop. <laughs> the song was stuck in my head. But we just constantly have thoughts thoughts, thoughts. And if you're a Christian, occasionally those thoughts will remind you of your identity, of your purpose, your character in Christ. When you're at church listening to a sermon and you're actually able by the grace of God to pay attention, or when you're in Bible study and you're studying the scriptures, talking about them with your friends, or maybe if you're listening to a sermon or a podcast, there are times where passive involuntary thoughts remind you of who you are in Christ. But in terms of all of the landscape of your life, your internal thought life, those thoughts will be in the tiny minority. I mean, you think about all the time. Your brain is on all the time, unless you're in deep sleep. But even then, I wake up and I have dreams and I'm like, man, that's weird. You know, you're thinking even in your sleep or you're having thoughts rather in your sleep. And those thoughts that point you to your identity in Christ will be in the tiny minority. And the reason is because there is so much competition for your thoughts. Do you know that? The world is not indifferent about your thoughts. The culture is not indifferent about your thoughts. Our enemy, the devil, is not indifferent about what is going on in your brain. And because of modern technology, the world and the culture have more access to your thoughts than at any other point in human history. Do you realize that? It used to be, if I wanted to put a thought in your brain, I had to say it to you, face to face. I had to just tell you what I'm thinking, or I had to at least imply it through language and body language. The only other option was, I could write it down and hope you encounter it that way. I could write you a letter or I could write a book, or an essay, or I could write a newspaper article, and that was how thoughts were exchanged. Now, not only is there TV and video games, that's kind of my generation, but there's smartphones, and there's Facebook, and Instagram feeds, and YouTube, and Twitter, and Snapchat, and TikTok, and on, and on, and on, and all of that. This is not conspiracy theory stuff. This is irrefutable fact. All of that is designed, backed by billions of dollars and the smartest people in the world to do what? To hardwire thoughts directly into your brain. That's why it exists. To put thoughts in your brain. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to take their phone and throw it in the garbage and run away screaming. Like, that's kind of what I want to do sometimes when I think about that reality. 
I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you just need to trash and get, get off of all of social media. I'm not saying that either. Although I do think, side note, there's great wisdom in fasting regularly from your social media. But what I am saying is that Paul's command for the church to consider themselves is maybe more important and relevant today than it even was 2,000 years ago. Because thoughts are not thinking. Thinking, considering, is when you talk to yourself. Thoughts are when your flesh and the culture and Facebook is talking to you. Putting thoughts in your brain. Thinking is when you talk to yourself intentionally. It's when you take control, when you teach yourself, when you intentionally ask yourself questions, is this decision consistent with who I am in Christ? Is this attitude consistent with being dead to sin? Is this friendship or relationship helping me become more like Jesus? That's thinking. And how do you know the answer? You need to put the Bible in your brain. <laughs> That's thinking. You put the Bible, the scriptures in your brain, and then you think about them. You apply them to your circumstances and relationships and situations with humility and intentionality. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Another thing to notice here, I was thinking about this as I was studying this passage. Who is this command to? Consider yourselves, plural, dead to sin. Who's the command to? Because here's, here's the way I read it initially, just sort of intuitively. I think, oh, this is a command for me, individually. I need to consider myself. I need to, I need to think. I need to teach myself. I need to ask myself questions. And certainly that's true. It's for individual Christians. But I think... Even more than that, I think mainly this is a command for the church collectively. Paul is writing to a church, maybe multiple churches, and he says, hey, you guys, look at me. Consider yourselves dead to sin. All of you, together. The church, the body of Christ, is to be holy. The church, the body of Christ, together, is to become more and more like Jesus. We see that over and over in the Bible, we are to collectively consider ourselves dead to sin, which means we are to speak to each other. We are to ask each other questions. Hey, brother, sister, is that decision consistent with our identity as Christians? Is your attitude in this situation consistent with us becoming more like Jesus? as a church. And when you don't do that in love with your brothers and sisters in the church, you should not assume it's going to happen through some other means. You shouldn't assume that because thoughts are not thinking. We need to intentionally think by speaking first to ourselves and to each other. Consider yourselves, plural, is the command. The Christian life is to be lived out in a community of relationships. So consider together who we are. That's the idea. And be who we ought to be. Be who we are in Christ. And that means you must be willing to have uncomfortable conversations. 
We have to be willing to have uncomfortable conversations. Think about how difficult it is to say to yourself in your own mind, to think about this. Okay, man, I've got to get my eating under control. My eating habits are out of control. I've got to deal with this. Or I've got to get my internet habits under control. Or I've got to figure out how to get this bitterness, this ickiness out of my heart towards this person because of this thing that happened. Those are hard conversations to have with yourself. That requires a lot of mental and emotional energy and time if you're serious about it. But do you know what you're not worried about in that equation? When you're just thinking, considering yourself dead to sin, you're not worried about rejection. You're not worried, well, what if, what if I talk to myself about this and it doesn't go well? <laughs> That's not in your mind. But it is if we're going to collectively consider ourselves dead to sin. It is if you feel compelled in love to point something out to your brother or sister. What if I have a conversation with them and they won't listen to me? What if I have a conversation with them and then it becomes awkward between us or they disagree or it impacts our friendships. Well, the Bible speaks to this. Proverbs 9, verse 8 says, Don't rebuke a mocker, or he will hate you. Rebuke the wise, and he will love you. Now, part of the risk is, sometimes, you don't know who you're dealing with. <laughs> but I think, if we're going to be who we are in Christ, we have to assume the best. We have to assume, this is my brother, this is my sister. They have the Spirit of God living in them which means they will respond like the wise and they will love me if I rebuke them. Proverbs 28, 23 says, one who rebukes a person will later find more favor than one who flatters with his tongue. If you want to obey the command to love one another, we have to be willing to have hard conversations. Now, it also says it's to one's own glory to overlook an offense. It says that love covers a multitude of sins. So we don't want to have a culture in our church where we go around just putting each other on blast all the time. Please don't hear me saying that. We, we want to be grace-driven. We, we want our relationships to be saturated with grace and mercy, patience, kindness. But if someone has truly offered themselves to God as a slave of righteousness and you see something in their living that isn't consistent with that and point it out to them, it might sting at first, but they will love you for it in the end. They will love you even more. They will say, thank you for pointing that out to me. Thank you for helping me to see that. Thank you for loving me enough to say something that was awkward and difficult for you to say. Consider yourselves dead to sin. That's the first thing. The second thing, so to sanctification. The Apostle Paul also read the book of Galatians. And the Bible loves to use this imagery of fruit. Here's how he says it in Galatians 6, verse 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Jesus said a tree will be recognized by its fruit. 
That's the idea of reaping. You reap the fruit of whatever seed you planted. A tree will be recognized by its fruit, and a Christian will be recognized by a life that looks like the life of Jesus. That's what sanctification is. A Christian will be recognized by a life that looks just like the life of Jesus, and God will not be mocked. Reality always wins, brothers and sisters. You can talk like a Christian. You can know lots of Bible verses. You can do Christian activities. But in the end, each one of us will reap what we sow in our church collectively. We will reap what we sow. You will reap what you sow in secret. You will reap what you sow with consistency. You will reap what you sow in the mundane, regular, boring, everyday parts of your life, not just the Instagram highlight reels. You will reap what you sow. And so here's a question I want to leave you with. Really important question, heavy question, but this will be so helpful. If you want to consider yourselves dead to sin, think about this question. Ask it to yourself. What do you want to reap in 10 years? How often do you think about that? What do you want to reap in 10 years from now? Do you want your character to be more like Jesus or less in 10 years? Everybody's going to say, well, more, of course. Well, do you know that it's either going to be more or less? It can't stay the same. Because Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. If you serve Jesus and obey Jesus, you will become more like him. But if you serve sin, if you serve yourself, you will become less like Jesus. What do you want to reap in 10 years? Do you want to have a better marriage or a worse marriage? Do you want to have a better relationship with your kids or worse? Do you want to be more self-disciplined, more productive, or more lazy and unproductive? Do you want to have more gospel impact in the lives of people around you or less? I'll never forget when I was 19 years old, I'd grown up in the church, I knew the gospel, I would have claimed to be a Christian, but I was a slave to my sin. I was my own master. At least that's the way I thought about it. And a dear friend of mine convinced me to go to a Christian leadership conference over the period of a week in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And I thought, uh, Bible teaching? Not really that excited about it, but hiking in the mountains? Okay, I can put up with it. So I went. And the preacher was teaching on Galatians, and he taught on this principle of reaping what you sow. And I will never forget, I do not have a good long-term memory, but I have this moment burned in my brain. This is what he said. He said, I'm 19 at the time. He said, what you sow in your 20s, you will reap in your 40s. And I thought, uh-oh. Because <laughs> you know that's true. You know that that's true. Most of the seeds that we sow are not like dandelion seeds. Some of them are. But many of the seeds that you're sowing every day, all the time, they're like the seeds of maple trees or oak trees. And the real fruit of those choices takes years to develop and mature, either to life or to death. And I knew that was true. And it scared me to death in a good way. And I just turned 40 last year. And I know God is far from done sanctifying me, but I can tell you, that preacher was right. He was right. And I look at all the good in my life now, 
And I am so thankful it's only by God's grace. I look at my wife and I think about our kids and I think about our church and I think about our ministry. I think about even things like that don't seem spiritual, our financial situation, our physical health. And not that all of that is part of the package necessarily. None of those things are guaranteed. But what I know for sure is that if I had not given myself to God as a slave to righteousness, in faith, by His grace, through the power of His Holy Spirit, my life would be a mess today, for sure. Now, it might not look like it on the surface, but my life would be a mess. And so I just want to encourage you to think about what do you want to reap 10 years from now. Now, what if, you're, what if you're thinking, I'm already in my 30s or my 40s or my 50s or my 60s, and I haven't been sowing to sanctification? What I would say to you is it's never too late. It's never too late. What you sow in your 70s, you will either reap in your 90s or you'll reap in heaven. <laughs> it's never too late to begin sowing to sanctification. So ask yourself, what in your life is not consistent with the character and the mission of Jesus, and then surrender it to him? Be who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth. God, that you give us what we don't deserve in Christ, which is eternal life. And God, you, Jesus, you said in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. Lord, there is freedom in offering ourselves as slaves to God and obeying you. And I just pray you'd help us to believe that. Help us to walk in that, not just individually, but collectively, Lord, that we would be a church that loves each other, loves Jesus and loves each other so much that we take the responsibility of holiness seriously. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.